Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and an even bigger thank you to everyone who joined us in Tokyo last week, where we met at Charlie Rose Event Space in Akasaka for our introductory real estate property investment seminar, which was a great event, not so much for their presentations themselves, which we're going to provide on today's episode in just a moment. Um, just because presentations tend to be a bit dry and one-sided, but mainly due to the fact that there were so many different kinds of people in attendance. So we got to meet Japan property enthusiasts, investors uh, living in Japan or overseas, uh, both expats and Japanese, quite a few real estate professionals, uh, some of our own clients and friends, and also a lot of people who are brand new to property investing and are either invested in other sectors or even not invested at all yet. So just to get all of those people together in one room for a couple of hours to talk shop, ask questions, we ditched the traditional official Q&A segment. And just because Charlie Rose is such a comfortable and convenient place to mingle and talk one-on-one, it's really just a beautiful city bar snack type of venue with presentation facilities. So after the presentations were done, we, uh, Paul, our furnished apartments, share house, guest house guru, and myself, simply stepped down from the podium and just had one-on-one and group conversations, which were really, in my opinion, at least the best part of the evening and definitely the most educational part, especially, again, for those brand new investors or would-be investors uh, who might be hearing this sort of uh, information for the first time. So here it is, our Japan Real Estate Investment Introductory Seminar, fresh off the speakers. Enjoy. Um Quick introduction just about who we are, and then we'll get right into it. So my name is Ziv, and I'm uh, one of the founders and partners in Nippon Tradings. In Nippon Tradings International, or some people know us as NTI. And what we do is um, we help buyers, sellers, um, and owners of real estate, wherever they might be owning or thinking about owning in Japan, to... Um, purchase, do due diligence, research, and manage their properties, and if and when they want to, uh, sell them as well. That can be investment, which is what we'll be talking about today, but it can also be um, owners occupiers, people who are just a holiday home or a second home, as they call it. Um, so we're an added layer on top of um, the real estate agent or the property management company, um, and we provide people with a single point of contact in English. Um, for all of the property needs. So usually we get hired by people who either um, don't have the time or the language skills or the know-how or the inclination to deal uh, in Japanese real estate, but they are interested in the market and they want to enter it, uh, which is usually where we come in. Okay, so without further ado, um, we're going to be talking basics today. So we're not going to um, deep dive too deeply into anything, just general market fundamentals, how, when, uh, where people tend to buy property and for what purpose, advantages, disadvantages, stuff that's unique to Japan, uh, maybe in comparison to wherever we are originally from, uh, types of problems that we might run into when we're managing properties here. Um, and we're going to touch a little bit about how to get creative and increase income. But um, if you really want to get into that, then the next speaker, uh, Paul over there, is going to really um, do what he does best, which is talking about um, guest houses, share houses, um, and really more creative ways uh, for people to increase their income beyond standard leases, which is what I'll probably be covering mostly. Okay, so basics about Japan, and this is stuff that most of you probably already know. Um, very affordable at the moment. 
mainly because uh, of the last 25 odd years or so up to 2012, which was a deflationary year. So property prices were significantly cut down up to less of uh, half what they were pre-bubble days. So from 1991 to about 2012, late 2012, um, when Abbasan came into office, property was trending down and to a point where it became very, very affordable compared to the rest of the developed world at least, uh, to buy properties in Japan. And this becomes even more of a thing if the property is older or smaller. Main reasons for that is um, Japanese tend to like things real, and um, space is really, really a commodity, especially in uh, Tokyo, Osaka, and um, very highly concentrated metropolitan centers. So if you're looking at properties uh, in the middle of Tokyo, in the middle of Osaka, uh, especially big ones and newer ones, prices might be comparable with other cities in the world, but once you get beyond a certain year and beyond a certain size, they become very, very affordable. Um, once Abbasan did come into office, uh, economic recovery of sorts started. This is still, unfortunately, quite limited to the macroeconomic level. So prices have started going up between 2012 to 2016. Um, in most major cities in Japan. In Tokyo and Osaka specifically, they're still going up, Fukuoka as well, and we'll talk about these locations um, a little bit later on. The rest of the country has sort of um, flattened out again since 2016. Some places are still gaining slightly, but the main increases now are mainly in Tokyo and Osaka, which are actually almost at their pre-bubble levels again. Uh, Fukuoka, we still has a lot of room to grow price-wise. The rest of the country, aside again from a few minor places that we'll talk about um, in, in a little bit later on, have sort of fallen flat again. No one's got a crystal ball, but we're estimating that there's probably going to be a few more of these push and pull cycles, at least until the major global events that are coming. So we got the Rugby Cup this year, we got the uh, Tokyo Olympics next year, uh, 2025 we got the uh, Osaka uh, World Expo. So all of these events serve to ignite interest in Japan, but it's sort of in a jerky kind of way. So when we're going to talk about um, advantages and disadvantages in Japan compared to other countries, capital growth may happen. We wouldn't necessarily bank on it uh, any long term. And the reason is mainly that things haven't trickled down. So um, there's interest, there's global interest in Japan, which has served for a lot of speculation, a lot of uh, uh, pushing of property prices upwards. But as long as companies haven't um, manifested that and shared their um, increased profits with their staff, salaries have risen, but only slightly. As a result of that, rents have also risen, but only slightly. So the gap now between the uh, property prices graph and the rental graph is becoming wider and wider, which makes for compressed yields. So salaries don't go up, rents cannot go up as well, uh, which is why some people say that Tokyo and Osaka at least are approaching bubble proportions again. Whether that's going to be the case or not, again, nobody knows for sure. So why do people invest in Japan? Um, capital growth, again, might be a thing, might not be a thing. Residential returns, however, are quite attractive. Again, compared to the rest of the developed world, uh, properties out of the major city centers and out of the um, larger and newer profile are very, very affordable. So if we're talking about single units and co-owned buildings in some cities which are not little um, Inaka out-of-the-way places as well, 
prices can still be very, very low. So places that have been doing well property-wise, like Sapporo, for example, or Kumamoto, um, still haven't, uh, transactions have picked up, uh, rentals are, rents are stable, people are coming in, they're living in those properties, they're generating the returns, but prices haven't quite gone up beyond the um, bottomed out level of 2012. So you can actually still find single mansion units for up to, uh, for starting from 2 million yen, so about just under 20,000 US dollars in some cases. Again, as long as we're talking about older and smaller properties. And there are advantages and disadvantages to uh, investing in those types of properties, which again, we'll dig into a little bit later. Um, and also, these returns that we're talking about, so let's say in Sapporo, Komamoto, we can get up to nine or 10%, um, just so we're on the same page, we talked about net before tax. So including all of your purchase and running costs, but not including your annual taxes and not including any unknowns like vacancies or maintenance, which we can sort of gauge and estimate in advance, um, but we don't like to factor that into our initial uh, calculation. So price at the time of purchase can be up to nine or 10% net before tax in those smaller cities and in those smaller and older profiles. But this is um, what we like to call paper price. So this is what you'll be getting if you're purchasing a property that's already got a tenant in there. In some cases though, the tenant might be paying the same rent that they've been paying uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And even though rents have dropped since then, if they move out, they will be able to pay much less. But typically Japanese tenants don't like to move much. If at all possible, they tend to, this is, course of gross generalization, but they tend to prefer to stay in the one place for as long as they can. And they also try to avoid what they think is conflict as much as possible. So even if they know that they could be paying less rent elsewhere, it's very, very rare for a Japanese tenant to actually approach his landlord or his property manager and ask for a discount. So if you're purchasing a property where you've had a tenant in place for say over 10 or 15 years, which is not uncommon in Japan, they're probably still paying the rent that they paid when they moved in, and unless something untowards happens to them, they might continue and pay that rent until the day they die or they're hospitalized or they're forced to move out for any reason. So these returns that you get at the time of purchase from that particular tenant that you've uh, inherited with the property might be good, they might be theoretical, and again, the older and smaller the property, the more pressure there's going to be on the rents to drop if and when that tenant moves out, which again we'll get into um, shortly. Lastly, um, relatively hassle-free management, which is another main draw um, of Japanese property uh, for investors, but for foreign investors. When we say hassle-free, again it's in comparison with other countries. So there are very uh, unique hassles uh, to Japan. Uh, for example, the aging population here means that often you'll have a tenant die in a property, which doesn't really happen that much in other countries. But when we say hassle-free, we mean that compared to problem tenants in other countries, Japanese tenants are very docile. So they don't tend to have too many payment issues. Um, they definitely don't um, invite squatters to live in with them. You don't, you're not going to find 50 people living in the same apartment, even though just one of them is on the lease. Um, if and when they do have payment issues and you have to evict them, eviction in Japan usually amounts to sending them a letter and they just move out. So there's no, um, there's no forced evictions. You very rarely have to take anyone to court. And if you've got a tenant in place for um, 
5, 10, 15, 20 years, in many cases, they're going to stay there until the day they die. And in many, many cases, most cases, you're not going to hear anything from them. They're not going to have any special requests. They're not going to uh, continuously bug the property manager to uh, fix or maintain things, which can be a bad thing as well. I mean, you often, when a tenant does move out or pass away or is hospitalized, and you, the unit becomes vacant, you find that they've just disasters in there. So um, mold in the bathroom, the fans have been working for five or 10 years. They haven't told anyone about it because they don't want to trouble anyone. But generally speaking, Japanese tenants um, are not problem makers. Generally speaking, it does happen, but not as a rule. So the challenges that we're facing, again, capital growth potential is unknown. Uh, the property market here has bottomed out, or at least most people believe it has bottomed out towards the end of 2012. It has gone up since then. Whether that will continue to happen and for how long that's going to continue to happen, nobody is really sure. So. If you look at institutional investors, for example, um, who can't really uh, get any global yields beyond 2 or 3 or 4%, they're quite happy speculating on Tokyo, Central Osaka. For other people who have other options elsewhere and can invest their funds in uh, something that might be a bit more adventurous but could get them uh, higher returns, those speculative locations are not as attractive. So for anyone to bank on growth, um, unless they've got no other place to park their money, not the best place, really a good place for rental income and hassle-free management. The aging, declining population, again, we've mentioned. So first thing we mentioned is people can die in a property or they can die uh, in hospital while living in a property a lot more often than you'll have this uh, happen in other countries. So you often have tenants that are 60, 70, 80 years old, um, either ones that you inherit when you purchase the property if there's already a tenant in there, or tenants that have um, and moved into a apply to move into the property, um, you're not always going to have a huge choice. So there might be five or six candidates, but they're all in their 60s or later. So the demographic plays a part. Another thing, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about locations, is you have to choose your locations um, wisely because there are a lot of towns that are dying out in Japan. So some places where you might be getting relatively high returns at the moment, if you look at the demographics of that particular town, um, it's just dying out. The population is dropping, people are moving out, they're conglomerating into the bigger cities, and that might not be a place that you want to... Uh, it might be good on paper, but as soon as the tenant moves out, you might be vacant for two or three years, which is something that you obviously want to avoid. And lastly, as anyone who's lived here for a while probably has noticed, and there's a huge cultural gap. And when we come in as foreign investors with our expectations and our... our um, our, our manners that we're used to in any other country that just doesn't fly with a lot of the Japanese that we're dealing with on a professional basis. So Tokyo specifically, Osaka, um, some of the more foreign aware places like Niseko up in Hokkaido or um, uh, Nahadam in Okinawa, those places are used to dealing with Yokosuka near Tokyo. Wherever there's a US Army base or there's a lot of international interest, those places are used to dealing with foreigners, so in every big city you'll find at least one, two, three local agents, local property managers that are uh, either English-speaking uh, English or French-speaking, Italian-speaking, or have staff that speak those languages. Other places which might be more attractive deal-wise, it's a lot harder to find people who will um, agree to speak with you, and even if you do speak the language and you do read and write Japanese, and they do actually initiate the relationship with you, 
something in the way that we behave along the way um, just causes them to suddenly back off and just disappear. So there's a, for us, for example, when we started our company, which was about uh, eight years ago now, it took us about a year to figure out the correct way to introduce ourselves, even uh, with my partner, my wife and business partner, Chikako, who is Japanese, um, the pitch that he had, she had to present to a new real estate agent that we want to work with had to be perfected. And it took us about a year until we could immediately pacify them and let them know that they'll never have to speak to any scary foreigner, they'll never have to provide any documentation in English, they'll never have to receive English phone calls. We've got the Japanese face, the Japanese company, we represent them 100%. And these days we can get maybe up to 50, 60% um, of these agents and property managers to work directly with us. Again, Tokyo and Osaka notwithstanding, there are plenty of um, uh, professionals speaking English here. But in any other city, it's still a bit of a challenge. And it, it becomes more of a challenge along the way because we do things that the Japanese just don't do. I mean, and the amount of questions that we ask before we actually go ahead with a deal, the amount of properties that we check and then back out of it because we found another deal elsewhere, the Japanese just don't tend to do that. So we have a bit of a reputation as tire kickers or Mendoxai, which is, from our perspective, very justifiable because we obviously want to make sure that everything's on, uh, on the right page before we go ahead and purchase a property. But for them, this is alien and they don't want to deal with it, as you probably see in many other aspects of life here in Japan. Um, the foreigner is scary. And we need to present them with a, a Japanese face in many cases, whether it's a friend or a family member or a professional uh, Japanese company that represents us, just to go ahead and, and manage to seal the deal. Okay, so how do we go about um, picking those locations that will be attractive for us? So obviously population growth is a big thing, and population growth can be um, of three kinds. So firstly, there's organic growth, people actually having babies. Not many cities in Japan where that's uh, on the plus side, so uh, Fukuoka is one of them, Fukui up north is one of them, although there's not that many deals there. Um, there's Kawasaki, I think, is still experiencing organic growth because it's uh, considered a very popular residential area, a lot of people are moving in there and starting families. Most other places in Japan, if the population is growing, it's for two other reasons. So one reason is, again, conglomeration. is smaller townships dying out, people moving into large metropolitan centers or larger metropolitan centers. And that's probably going to, unless anything in the demographics changes drastically, that's probably going to continue for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years as all these small villages and towns will disappear and the population will be more centralized. And the last reason is if there's migration for any reason. So, for example, after the uh, uh, Tohoku disaster in 2011, a lot of people wanted to get as far away from uh, that area, even from Tokyo, as they could. And cities like uh, Nagoya, Osaka, Fukuoka uh, all enjoyed large swaths of migration as a result of that. In other cases, migration occurs because of uh, some sort of economic trend. So, down in southern Kyushu, for example, uh, again, following the 2011 disaster, we had a large uh, we had a large boom in people moving into that area to work in the renewable energy industry, which was getting a lot of uh, generous subsidies from the government at that point. And that also kicked off migration. If there's, uh, for any reason, a hospitality resort that was set up, a lot of people go and work there. So you often see more or less temporary uh, increases in population that are due to economic reasons as well. 
Um, so of these locations, and this is just a partial list, um, if you'll have a look um, on Wikipedia and a few of the Japanese uh, population census websites, if you can read Japanese, and um, you'll find places where the population is actually increasing, you have to watch out for um, fake increases. So if you see a place that's actually gone up in population, say, double digits in over four or five years, that's probably not a real increase in population. Uh, what that is is towns being cancelled out officially and conglomerated, not physically people moving to the bigger city, but the smaller townships just being deleted as actual uh, municipal centers and all being uh, pulled together under one central city. So anything that you see that's gone over then, let's say, eight or nine percent over a period of four or five years, probably not real population increase. But if you look a little bit further down the list, anything from eight, nine percent over five years and below is places where the population is increasing for any reason. So of those places, um, Sapporo not included, population is actually not increasing in Sapporo at the moment, but it still features some of the highest yields of the big cities. So Sapporo is about two million people, which is I think fifth or sixth in size in Japan. And property prices there, although they have inched up slightly, have not gone up nearly as sharply as they have in other places for various reasons. And you can still get very high yield, high rental yields there in comparison with other places. So again, seven, eight years ago, you could get 11, 12, 13 net pre-tax um, in many, many cities. These days, if you're looking at uh, the other cities on this list, Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kyoto, and other cities that we'll talk about in a moment, um, the most you'll be able to get there, and that's not going to be so central either, is going to be 7 or 8% net pre-tax. In Sapporo, for some reason, you can still get 9 to 10% net pre-tax. Prices there just haven't picked up as significantly. Uh, Fukuoka is a rising star in the sense that it's the gateway to Western Japan. And the, um, the mayor and the prefectural governor there have done a very good work on putting the place on the map as far as uh, innovation, incoming tourism, startups, uh, entrepreneurial spirit goes. So it's known as uh, Japan's startup capital. In practice, in reality, Tokyo is still doing much more uh, startups and entrepreneurial activity than Fukuoka is, but Fukuoka has got the vibe. It's got the, uh, it's got the uh, PR, and it's, it's grasped as such a place. It's also a place where the population is a lot younger than in other places, so they are organically growing. People are more transient there, so from a, a landlord perspective, for example, Fukuoka tenants tend to move out a lot more often than tenants in other cities because they've got a new job, they're relocating to another company, they're relocating to another city, they're moving overseas, they're coming back from overseas, but vacancies get filled up very, very quickly. So it's a, sort of what you'd expect from any modern vibe, um, youngish, modernish city around the world. Uh, property prices have nearly doubled there in the last uh, four or five years, so returns again went down from about 12-13% eight years ago to now 7% at most, but still returns are much higher than Osaka and Tokyo, and property prices still have a lot of room to grow there. So in Tokyo, for instance, or Osaka these days as well, you can get your entry level to the market, even if you're talking about a single mansion apartment that's maybe... 30, 35, even 40 years old, usually the entry level in Tokyo and Osaka is about 7, 8 million yen, so about 60, 65,000 US dollars. In Fukuoka, for example, you can still get these places 
for as low as three, three and a half million. So they've still got a lot of room to grow, even though they have grown quite significantly in recent years. Uh, Nagoya has been growing uh, along with the rest of the cities, not as quickly, but these days, mainly due to the new um, bullet train line that's been put in place, or that's going to be put in place, I think, very shortly, uh, which will make uh, transit time much shorter from Tokyo to Nagoya and back. And also another aspect of that is that they're tearing down a lot of houses along those new tracks, and that uh, pushes uh, occupancies very high in the city center and in the most popular suburbs. So Nagoya has been starting to uh, exhibit price increases that most likely will continue for the next two or three years. Uh, Kyoto has gone up nice and stable throughout the years. Doesn't tend to drop much at all. And at the moment, it's a very, very popular city for tourists to the point where um, Kyotoites are a little bit sick and tired of seeing our faces on the street there. And uh, so it's a very good place if you're looking for, uh, as we'll get to in a bit, um, monthly leases or short-term leases uh, of Airbnb style guest houses, share houses. We can still see a few good deals come out of there, um, but not as many as we used to. And lastly, the places where you can still get uh, high potential return, uh, even these days, and very affordable prices are satellite cities, bedroom communities. So uh, places around Tokyo, for example, anywhere on the, um, on the line to Narita and back, the metropolitan part of Chiba, Hachiyoji, Chofu, Machida, Sagamihara, places near Osaka, like Higashi, Osaka, Amagasaki. So anywhere that you see um, smaller town that's within 45 minutes or one hour by train from a big metropolitan center, that's a bedroom community or a satellite city. And those places will usually have um, easy tenanting capabilities and high returns, but prices there have not gone up much, which again is a reason for those high returns. You might not be able to bank on huge growth there uh, if the rest of the country does well, but you will always have stable tenancies and you will always have uh, reasonable rental returns. Satellite cities, by the way, can be big places too. So Kawasaki is sort of a satellite city to Tokyo. Uh, Yokohama may be pushing it because it's Japan's second biggest city. Kobe and next to Osaka is also a kind of satellite city, even though it's got its own, definitely got its own economic center and everything. Uh, so those places and prefectural capitals. So if you look at uh, Kumamoto, for example, down in Kyushu, uh, Fukuoka itself, if you look at places like um, in uh, Shikoku, Tokushima, or Ehime, so places that are the only big main city, Sendai, for example, up north, the only big main city in any particular prefecture that's always a good uh, rental return driver and always stable for tenancies. Whether, again, prices will go up or there or not, not as likely as the rest of the country, but a possibility. So what do we check when we buy these properties? And again, this is, again, talking about long-term leases specifically. We're going to get into short-term in a minute. Um, if we're buying units in a co-owned building, meaning um, every unit in the building is owned by a different owner, and there's a building management company, and there's an owner's co-op who are managing the property, what we really want to look at um, is a correlation of uh, three topics. So the building will have a reserve funds pool that is collected, and it will have a renovation history, or it should have a renovation history if it's been managed properly. And you want to make sure that the two correlate. So 
If the renovation history in the last, say, 10 years doesn't include any big items like the roof or the exterior or in big buildings, the lifts, which are the really big ticket items for these buildings, there should be ample amount of money in the reserve funds to, uh, to be, for them to be able to pull out a big renovation because it's definitely going to be uh, coming soon. So new buildings need one every 20 years or so. The older the building gets, it becomes every 15 years, every 10 years. So you want to look back and make sure that there's enough money for the next big renovation, or that the next big renovation, that the last big renovation was not too far off in the past, which means you're probably safe enough. Because what happens when these big renovations do need to happen is they, um, if there's not not enough money in the reserve fund pool, uh, one, it might signify bad management on behalf of the management company, and two. And it's going to hike up the building fees that you pay every month. So the advantage of owning a unit in a co-owned unit block is that there are no surprises. You pay your monthly fees every month. You pay for management. You pay for the reserve fund pool. And these sort of amounts are supposed to keep you safe from any structural and major expenses. You still need to obviously do up your interior of your unit, but you don't need to suddenly fork out um, seven or eight or ten thousand dollars for fixing the lift or fixing the structure, the reserve fund pool is supposed to pay for that. So if that reserve fund pool is not in place or is not sufficient, you're looking at price hikes or you're looking at in some rare cases a one-off payment to each owner which could be in the thousands of dollars, which is what you want to avoid or at least avoid for as long as you can. And those monthly fees again you want to you want to make sure um, how much is being collected run a quick calculation of how much should have been available for re renovations and repair based on the amount that's been collected over the 10 years. And if there's any discrepancy there, again, that might mean bad management. Um, which it all really boils down to, you'll often see buildings um, where the management company was suddenly changed over after a period of time. So renovation history is only available for the last five years because in the 10 or 15 years prior to that, the management company didn't even keep a record of what they were doing. Not necessarily a bad thing, so if there's a new management company in place, it means that the uh, owner's co-op has actually taken action to remedy the situation. But again, you want to correlate and make sure that you're not suddenly hit with any surprises, because if you are hit with any surprise expenses, you've lost the entire point of owning individual units in a co-owned block. If you own the entire structure, um, then surprises are a more common thing. So if you own a small uh, uh, building of your own, or you own a house, or you own a structure that's being used for commercial purposes, everything's on you, there's no reserve fund pool, there's no, um, the renovation history and the renovation plans are something that you need to take care of, so you need to bring in maintenance, take care of all of that. So you do obviously need to look at due diligence um, as far as the, uh, on the time of purchase, you wanna make sure that some things have been done or some things have not been done, you take it off the price via negotiation because you know you're gonna to have to do them soon. But then it really becomes a, um, a trade-off of your creative freedom. So when you own a unit in a column block, your creative freedom is pretty much nil. The most that you'll be able to do is maybe increase your income by renting units out by the month, which building management companies don't like, but they don't really have any way of preventing it, except just bothering you. Um, but you do want to be able, you're not going to be able to have the creative freedom of leasing units out short term. You're not going to be able to convert them into commercial units or mixed purpose units because building management and the other owners will just not allow you to do that. So if you are buying an entire structure, 
the advantages are uh, twofold. One of is you do have the creative freedom to apply for a license to do short-term leasing, for example. The unit has a tiny land pot uh, divided between all the owners, and you're not going to be gaining as much. But again, that comes with lack of stability, and it comes with a lot more um, surprises. So suddenly the roof goes, the wall goes, natural disaster hits, and you're, you need to pay for all of that. So you want to make sure that you can um, capitalize on those options that you have when you buy the entire structure. So you want to make sure that the uh, building restrictions allow you to do what you want, might want to do there in the future. Because, for example, um, those cute little townhouses uh, that you see a lot of in Kyoto and some places in Tokyo that are built like um, three buildings on a 50 by 50 meter square, which are lovely for photo opportunities, those can't be built anymore these days. So you might end up purchasing a building that's all fine and dandy and generating rental income. When the time comes to demolish it, you're actually not allowed to build the building there anymore. So the most you'll be able to do is build a little shed because these days regulations don't allow for a building to be built on such a small land plot. So you want to check current building restrictions for your particular plot of land. Um, you want to check any area restrictions. So, for example, some areas have banned any kind of Airbnb or short-term leasing. You want to make sure, you want to confirm with City Hall, if that might be your plan in the future, you want to confirm with City Hall pre-purchase that you're actually going to be able to do that there. That can change over time, but at least at the time of purchase, you want to know that it's available. And you want to check accessibility, because that will affect what you're going to build there. So if you're going to build small studio units, there's going to be no room for parking. You want to be, make sure that you're close to public transport. If in the future you might build a, a house with a parking spot, then suburban might be okay. A long walking distance to the station might be okay. All things that you need to consider in advance when you're purchasing an entire structure. Because if you don't have the creative freedom to utilize that space that you've purchased, and there's no point to go for it. Just go for individual units instead. Other things um, beyond the standard leasing, um, and again, there's the entire um, section of shared and the shared office spaces, shared living quarters, which Paul is going to get into in a minute. But alternative asset classes that you can buy and benefit from in the long term: um, logistics facilities. So um, the internet uh, has picked up, internet trading is picked up, Japan is slowly moving up, not nearly there with the rest of the world, but a lot of people are buying a lot more online these days than they have been in the past. And that's put a lot of pressures on companies like Amazon and so forth, or whoever does internet uh, commerce these days, to actually provide uh, same-day deliveries or next-day deliveries, and for that they need distribution centers, they need warehouses, they need uh, specifically built for purpose um, factories and warehouses in the center of cities or in the suburbs of cities. So again, if you've got the land plot and you've got the creative freedom to do with that land plot as you wish, that's always an option that you can potentially benefit from. And the other option is a parking lot or storage facilities, which require a large land plot, um, but don't require much construction, and they don't require almost any maintenance whatsoever. And so if you do have access to a large land plot in an attractive location for a relatively cheap price, but you don't quite have the capital to build a building or a house there, building a parking lot or a storage or bringing containers and turning it into a storage facility is a, a strategy that a lot of local Japanese investors use uh, until they build up enough capital to do anything more attractive with their land plot. So pricing. How do we know um, 
what's a reasonable price to purchase or what's a reasonable price to sell an existing property. Um, so we need to differentiate here because people are used to, well, let's go this way, working people in Japan, salarymen who are renting places out or low income earners, uh, people who are working in offices, uh, day jobs, shift workers, these sort of people, usually will not be able to afford a place to buy and vice versa, the people who can afford to buy a place would not want to live in those places. So there are usually very, uh, there's a very clear division between investment properties and owner-occupied properties. So owner-occupied properties, meaning properties that are of a certain size and a certain age that a family who can afford to buy will actually want to live in, these are priced same as they are anywhere in the world based on market fundamentals. If prices have gone up in this area and people find themselves attracted to this area for whatever reason and they want to buy property there, price will go up. If not, it will be flat. If not, it will go down. When you talk about investment properties, they're priced completely differently. So investment properties in Japan, properties that are clearly not going to be bought by owners occupiers, are priced 100% only on the yield that they can generate. So you'll often see an area that's gone up in price for any reason, but those particular properties, the older ones, the smaller ones, the studio units, the one-bedroom units, those prices will not go up because, again, as we said in the beginning, rents haven't gone up, salaries haven't gone up, they're still generating the same yield or less, which can happen if there's big developments in the area pushing rentals down on the older units as well. Those places will be priced only on what they're currently generating from the tenant or on what they can potentially generate from the next tenant. So if you've owned a property for five or six years, the area has done well, but your rental income hasn't gone up, you shouldn't be expecting to be selling it at a profit. So the only profit that you would have made on this particular property would have been the rental income that you would have made on it from the day you purchased until the day you sold. Don't expect price to go up unless you um, somehow increase the rental capacity of that property. Um, and lastly, local buyers tend to pay more than foreign buyers. Foreign buyers always, even if they live in Japan, always consider exchange rates to some degree. They send money back home, they bring money from home for their, purchase, uh, for their purchases, and they've got other markets that they can go to. They consider other countries, they consider more creative um, investment techniques than local investors who are limited to what they know and can access do. So local buyers tend to pay more for properties, which means they tend to settle for lower rental yields compared to foreign buyers. So um, we've got a few customers in this room um, who can testify that when they ask us to find them a property, their lower rental yield limit is considerably higher than what any Japanese investor would consider. Japanese investors are very similar to institutional um, investors in that regard in that they're quite satisfied with relatively low returns. And foreign buyers are not. So if you're looking to sell a property and you don't think that you can increase the price that you purchased it for, try selling it on the local market because the amount of money that you need to pay extra for a Japanese realtor to be involved in the process uh, is going to be minute compared to the extra amount of cash that you can get from a local Japanese investor. So it's tempting to always try to skip the middleman and go directly to your friends and circle and advertise them on um, English websites and so forth, but try the local markets because you will get more money for your properties there. So unique problems, we've spoken about some of them. Um, Gaijin Kowai, 
we, we're scary for the uh, Japanese, and that doesn't go just for us as investors, it goes for potential tenants as well. So if you're working with a Japanese property manager, and you want to consider letting in foreign tenants, which is one of the income hacks that we can sometimes do, and that's probably our last, next and last slide, uh, property managers uh, will be very reluctant to work with uh, foreign tenants, uh, even if they do speak English to some degree, and even if the foreign tenant speaks Japanese to some degree. And that goes for all professionals you are dealing with. Death is part of life, which we've spoken about. People tend to die in properties a lot more, and it's something that you need to be prepared for. So when you get your insurance for a property, um, we used to think only over 60 these days we get death insurance, which is a small clause in an insurance policy that only costs about 15 bucks a year for these studio or one bedroom units. Um, and that covers you for up to one million yen of expenses in case a tenant dies in the property. And also, most importantly, it covers you for two years of vacancy, which happens a lot in Japan because once the, someone's died in the property, the agent and the leasing agent are then obliged to let the next tenant in line know. And that pushes down your rent or just leaves the property vacant for a very long time because people don't want to move in it. So that insurance policy for 15 bucks a year covers you for up to two years of decreased rents or vacancies. So you want to get that because people do die in properties in Japan a lot more. Um, paper is king, meaning everything has to be done by paper or fax or post. So you have to prepare to receive tons of paperwork with every property purchase. There's no online signatures of anything. There's very rarely, um, except in the bigger cities and the more um, savvy agencies, very rarely um, video conference settlements or anything of, anything to do with email. It's just a rarity out of Tokyo and Osaka and maybe a few other cities. So get, get used to reading, writing, communicating with your professionals in Japanese and via paper. And rent hikes, as we mentioned, not going to happen unless salaries goes up. Uh, salaries go up significantly, which is still not the case. And there are no inspections. That's the last thing. So when you buy a property with a tenant in it, according to Japanese tenancy laws, nobody can enter a tenanted property, including the owner, including the property manager, including anyone who needs to look at the property, cannot enter a tenanted property unless it's by the tenant's request. So if you're buying a property with a tenant in there, a long-term tenant in there, you're buying sight unseen, something that you have to factor into a potential interior renovation cost that you want to you consider. And you can't inspect the property every one year or two years or three years or even uh, when you sell it to another person like you do in any other country. So there are no inspections, there are no rent hikes. And on the upside, if you're sticking to these um, smaller units or buildings with smaller units in them, renovation costs are usually lower um, compared to bigger properties as well. So a studio or one bedroom unit costs obviously less to renovate than a bigger one. But the age is also a factor. So if you bought an older property, that particular property is most likely going to take more renovation when somebody moves out. Income hack. So foreign tenants, which we've mentioned here, um, not necessarily any foreigner, like the people sitting around this room are probably not going to be uh, paying any more rent than anybody else. But when we talk about foreign tenants, such as university students, people who have come here for a couple of years just to study, and they don't have any guarantors, they don't have any proven income that they can show to property managers, and they don't necessarily, um, don't necessarily cannot sign up with a guarantee company, as they call it here, or rent insurance company. So these tenants will pay more. That's one income hack that you can, if you're open to these types of tenants, that's an income hack that you can utilize. 
Another one is monthly rentals, which again, building management companies don't like, but if you own the entire building, you can definitely do. And even if you own co-owned units in a co-owned block, they might not like it, but you can lease them out by the month. So there are property managers in Japan that specialize in what they call monthly mansion. They'll tell you in advance, ahead of the purchase, if you want, if that particular property will be, in their estimate, successful on a monthly lease or not. And you might want to aim for slightly more upmarketing properties just so you'll be able to do that and increase your income down the track. And lastly, and this is where Paul will come in, um, shared homes, shared offices, meet up with short-term leases, a bit more complicated to manage, but definitely the best way to increase income on the long term if you don't mind being hands-on and involved. And before we go into the question, before we go into Paul's presentations, and um, just want to point out Alex Watanabe there has been taking lovely pictures of you and the video of these presentations, and uh, you can find them at Snatch.talk. He's doing a great job for us. And um, any questions particularly, or do you want to do a Q&A session at the end of both presentations? Up to you guys. I bored you to death. Uh, yeah, go for it. Luxury. Um, low returns, but good for short-term leases. And so it depends on the level of luxury. Again, uh, you can buy very. Ex I mean, Tokyo luxury properties are up there with New York or Los Angeles or Sydney or anywhere else in the world. So that means returns are very, very low for the long-term leases, uh, but can be very high for short-term leases. Um, but just bear in mind that with luxury properties, um, people expect you to maintain them to a much higher standard than your typical uh, older property. So that's something to factor in as well. Yep. I've always been kind of curious. Um, if you buy a unit in a co-owned building, um, and it's a relatively older property because you're suggesting that you may go for a slightly older property, eventually the building can have to reflect. Is that something that, that, this, that they, um, they set money aside for, or is that something that all of a sudden Well, when we say older building, we personally as a company would not recommend anything over 40 years exactly for that reason. Um, but having said that, it depends on the building. So if you're looking at these small um, aparto blocks, the, the wooden frame types, or with the, the, sorry, the steel frame wooden types, um, they definitely die a lot quicker. But the big uh, concrete blocks, especially the big monsters, like 100, 200 units, they usually get renovated to kingdom come. So we, we've got quite a few customers with uh, properties in a 200 or 150 unit block that looks a lot better than some of the younger units just because they're cash cows. So the management company will keep renovating them for as long as they can. And also to demolish these buildings uh, for a developer to pay 150 or 200 unit owners and remove 200 units worth of concrete and steel um, from the site is a much less attractive proposition if they can find a similar land plot with an easier to remove or easier to compensate building on it. Um, so that's another reason why they keep renovating these units for as long as they can. Having said that, we do have some investors who specifically target older, smaller buildings because they know that the developer at some stage will come in and want to, um, want to buy that off them. Generally speaking, if the offer hasn't come in individually, when the building management company um, does their uh, annual or biannual inspection, when they recognize that the uh, building fees are going to uh, come up to a point where it's just no longer feasible, then they will suggest to the owners that it might be time to consider a sale. Um, and again, even when those building fees do go up, 
Um, we as foreign investors might not be satisfied them, with them, but local investors still are. So when a property drops beyond a certain yield level and beyond a certain age, might be a good time to sell and it's still going to be quite easy to sell. So it's, it's not a major factor, but it's definitely, I, I wouldn't go past 40 years old at the time of purchase, probably less than that if possible. Okay, thank you very much. And um, for the real serious stuff and the real income hacks, my name is Paula. And I'm not going to be Spanish, so it may be a bit rough. However, I'll give it my best. Um, our company's name is Pacific Business KK or Pacific Business Kabushki Gaisha. Uh, we also operate under several brand names. Um, one of the main names is Madagun Tokyo. Uh, we do property investment management IT solutions. Uh, we started in about 2007. And our primary focus is actually Japanese customers. It's quite a bit different than Zip's business. Um, and I'll just I'll just take you through one by one on some of the different kinds of topics that we do. Uh, we own and manage buildings around Tokyo. So uh, our primary market is furnished real estate, and we work in many different ways. Um, we have a lot of furnished apartments. We have about 220-25 rooms around Tokyo. Um, so I'm just going to go through the different methodologies of renting real estate in Tokyo that's furnished. Um, Zip touched a bit on Minpaku, which is um, short-term rentals. Uh, they can be weekly, monthly furnished rentals. Um, the rules are very strict. The rules changed last year in 2018. So now, the certain areas allow Minpaku, certain areas don't. Certain areas will allow you to rent your place out on a weekend only. Certain areas will allow you to rent seven days a week. Uh, each location, you have to check the rules with the, uh, it's called, Health, health and you can rent it for up to 180 days a year, and after that, uh, that's either the owner-occupied or rented full-time. If you are not an owner-occupied renter, then you actually have to engage a management company. The next uh, license that has advantages and cons is the Ryokan Gyo Simple Lodging Budget Hotel License. It has additional requirements compared to Minpaku. Both require that you do certain things with the fire department and other changes to your apartment building or your rooms, which will definitely cost you money in order to get the licenses. But after you've obtained the licenses, uh, the value of your property does go up if you do try to sell it to somebody. We also do long-term unfurnished furnished or serviced rentals, and I'll show you some of those at the end of the presentation. Um, we also used to do dormitories, we don't anymore, and uh, we have a lot of guest houses with guest house rooms, and those are also very profitable. If you look at real estate in Tokyo, uh, the residential side, some of the highest rents per square meter are from shared houses. So the advantages of the Ryokan Gyo license are the simple lodging budget hotel license over the Kaku license, which doesn't really have an English translation, is that you can operate 365 days a year. It takes more investment to obtain one, 
but it's a much better license to have, and if you do it on your property, of course, that's a big advantage. In order to find out what's necessary to meet the requirements, there's no option except to go and meet with the local officials to find out what the fire department requires, what the health department requires, as far as modifications to your room or building. Um, so the pros are profit, profits and resale, and the cons, of course, are set up cost and the regulatory rules. <clears throat> so this is kind of interesting because there's a lot of discussion as to why the law was changed last year. And most people will tell you, especially if they have any interaction with the government or large companies, that they feel it was essentially a taking from the private sector and a handoff to corporate Japan. Um, and as soon as it was no longer a gray area to do short-term rentals, like the Airbnb market, for example, in San Francisco, um, large companies, Japanese companies, jumped right into the market, like Prop 10, um, Tsumitomo Fudo-san, and others. So who lost? Well, all the private hosts lost, and all the professional hosts who were able to get the licenses gained. But it also opened up a whole section of unforeseen opportunities that a lot of people aren't aware. So institutional investors are not interested in smaller properties that may have 10 or 15 rooms. And individual investors who don't have any kind of affiliation with a property management company don't have the capacity to set up a property like that. So smaller investors who can afford either land or land in a used building in an area where it's legally uh, possible to do Ryokan, Gyo, or Menpaku, um, essentially have a license to print money. And they're far and few between. The properties are easy to find, but they're out there, and it's an excellent opportunity for investors. Another thing that many people aren't aware of is something called a fixed-term lease. Uh, trying to remember the Japanese word. Tiki Shakuchi Keaku. A fixed-term lease is a lease that is a monthly lease agreement that operates for a certain period of time and can't be renewed, although you can, you can make a new lease for uh, a tenant or a resident. And the unique thing about it is it's outside of the Minpaku laws. So even if you have somebody who stays for three weeks and leaves, as long as you have the proper documentation and a reason in writing that they're leaving, and they signed a monthly agreement, um, you haven't broken any laws in Japan. So there are a lot of companies now that are doing weekly, monthly furnished rentals operating under fixed-term lease agreements. So furnished rentals are more profitable than unfurnished rentals, and they are more work. But the occupancy rates and the returns are also higher because there's less of them, so the demand is more. As for recommended investment property types, I would have to absolutely say the simple lodging and budget hotel license is where there's a lot of activity right now. And I'm gonna to try to give you some examples here. Um, so this is over at Oceaga. And I believe this is, this is over at Kita Shinjuku. These are examples of rooms that we've set up as fixed-term lease agreement rentals, or weekly, monthly furnished rentals. We've stepped back a bit from dormitories, although they're very profitable, but they're, they're a lot of work. 
And the living spaces in the dormitories are all shared. You'll have more than one person in the room. It's a little bit similar to a capsule hotel. Share houses. Uh, this is an example of a share house over in, this one looks like Nakano. So you'll have either private or semi-private rooms with shared common spaces like laundry, kitchens, etc. Um, again, more work to manage and require higher maintenance, uh, but much better uh, profits. Uh, private furnished apartments. Uh, this one is over, I believe, in uh, Ginza. Um, the rents are extremely high. Uh, there's not a lot available, so the demand is good. And you can do both vacation rentals, uh, business rentals. Um, if you have large, large properties, uh, spaces where uh, overseas workers who come to Japan for a week, a year, three years, uh, they need to find a place for their family or for themselves to live. Um, it's much more profitable than the unfurnished rooms. And then service departments. This is also uh, Ginza East that we just took over for management. It's a gorgeous building sitting over a park. And um, for example, the rent in this location for this room would be about 450000 in a month. So it's definitely high end. And here's a quick example of some of the services that you might provide for free or extra fees. Uh, linen change services, some customers will want the weekly linen, linens changed. They'll want weekly or bi-weekly laundry. Um, some will request cutting, some will request weekly cleanings. Um, you'll get requests for even if people are here for travel, shopping assistance and services or translation. Um, we offer the language assistance for free at our company. We have six or seven different languages that we cover. So just a quick sample of, of the services. And again, it's, it's a lot of work. And I'll take questions with Ziv uh, now or again, if you have those preferences. And one more thing I just wanted to pop into real quick. I don't know if there's any interest in this room for this or not, but. Okay, that's the website. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Google Wi-Fi or um, intelligent networks, but our company also has an IT side, and we are the first and only company to bring this system to Japan. It's very similar to Google Wi-Fi for homes, except it's for businesses. And it's um, an intelligent network that manages itself, it's self-healing. It also provides mesh support, um, and it's pretty much what the future is going to require for IoT and AI. Um, when Wi-Fi 6 comes and 5G comes, this is the kind of network that will support a lot of the different smart functions in buildings, apartments, offices, retail spaces, uh, event spaces, etc. So if you're interested in all this, I'm happy to discuss it one-on-one -on -one, uh, after the presentation. Oops. Okay. Um. I think we can we'll maybe give you guys uh, a breather for five or ten minutes and then we'll do a QA session or we'll just do one on one, whatever you prefer. So grab a drink, hit the toilet, and we'll get back here in about five or ten minutes.
So there you go. That was it. Uh, if you attended or are just tuning in and listening or watching now, we hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we certainly did, and the turnout was great. So we're already thinking about where we're going to hold the next one, most likely in Osaka or Fukuoka, uh, both of which seem to have the demand for it. We've already received requests in both cities. So we'll keep you posted as soon as that's scheduled. Meanwhile, if you've got any questions on any of the topics discussed in the seminar, do feel free to post them in the comment section or wherever you might have found this recording. We'll also link to the presentations themselves as well as to a video of the seminar and some pictures just in case you're not watching this on YouTube already. Do share this episode and our podcast with your own networks if you think they might find the content useful. And as usual, we would really, really appreciate it if you could just take a short moment of your time leave us a star rating or a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be subscribing or listening from. Your word of mouth really helps us reach more people and that helps them with access to content that may save them or make them a fair bit of money. So you're really doing everyone involved, uh, ourselves included, a huge favor by rating or reviewing this podcast. So thank you for that one as well. We hope to have you with us next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI and Pacific Business KK, Paul Feinberg's company, we wish you, as always, a great day or night, and of course, happy investing.